Today is August the 17th, 2022. On this date was the week that was in history that began in August the 15th through the 17th in 1969 at Bethel, New York. Woodstock was a three-day music festival attended by mainly young people living the hippie lifestyle. The concert took place during a time when many young people strongly opposed the controversial Vietnam War and wanted to spread the message of peace and love. The festival organizers could not figure out an efficient way to charge people, so they decided to make the tickets free. Credence Clearwater Revival was the first big name to agree to perform and got the ball rolling on other well-known musicians and bands. A total of 32 musicians performed at Woodstock. Richie Havens was the first to take the stage. Other performers included Santana, The Grateful Dead, The Who, Janis Chaplin, and Jimi Hendrix. The Woodstock Music Festival remains a symbol of the counterculture movement of the 1960s. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is also available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Tonga's volcano eruption on January 15th sent tons of water into the stratosphere. NASA recently released a study of the violent eruption volcano injected an unprecedented amount of water directly into the stratosphere, and the vapor will stay there for years, likely affecting the Earth's climate patterns. The massive amount of water vapor is roughly 10% of the normal amount of vapor found in the stratosphere, equaling more than 58,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The volcano sent vapor and gases to a record height. The January 15th eruption came from a volcano that's more than 12 miles wide, with a caldera sitting roughly 500 feet below sea level. Tongan officials reported the volcano was in a continuous eruption, sending a three-mile-wide plume of steam and ash into the sky. Then the big blast came, sending ash, gases, and vapor as high as 35 miles, The January eruption in Tonga was the world's largest in the 21st century and possibly the most powerful since Krakatoa in 1883. The explosion rained ash down on Tonga and triggered a tsunami which damaged more than 100 homes and killed three people. Drone aircraft and other video from that day showed the dramatic scale of the blast as the volcano launched an incredibly wide plume into the sky. The intense eruption sent a pressure wave circling around the Earth and caused a sonic boom heard as far away as Alaska. The huge amount of water will likely raise temperatures. Earlier, large volcanic eruptions have affected climate, but they usually cool temperatures 
because they send light-scattering aerosols into the stratosphere. Those aerosols act as, as a sort of massive layer of sunscreen. But since water vapor traps heat, the Tongan eruption could temporarily raise temperatures a bit. It normally takes around two to three years for sulfate aerosols from volcanoes to fall out of the stratosphere. But the water from the January 15th eruption could take five and up to ten years to fully dissipate. Given that time frame and the extraordinary amount of water involved, the Tonga volcanic eruption may be the first eruption observed to impact climate not through surface cooling caused by volcanic sulfate aerosols, but rather through surface warming. NASA says the data for the study came from the microwave limb sounder instrument on its Aura satellite, which measures water vapor, ozone, aerosols, and gases in Earth's atmosphere. The volcano interrupted the heartbeat of water in the stratosphere. The January 15th eruption emphatically disrupted annual water patterns in the stratosphere, which also holds most of the atmosphere's ozone. The normal mechanism by which water rises into the stratosphere is so reliable that researchers refer to it as a sort of a tape recorder, marking annual temperature cycles through alternating bands of dry and moist air rising from the tropics. January is normally the middle of the dry period in a seasonal cycle, but then the Tongan volcano erupted in the South Pacific Ocean, suddenly injecting a huge amount of water in the stratosphere. By short-circuiting the pathway through the cold point, the volcano has disrupted the heartbeat signal in the planet's normal atmospheric water pattern. Scientists say the explosion was more powerful than hundreds of atomic bombs and produced a shock wave that circled the Earth for days. The resulting water vapor may remain in the atmosphere for 5 to 10 years, and the warming effect will likely begin in 3 years. Dark plasma eruption from the sun is headed towards Earth. The potential effects include weak power grid fluctuations and a minor impact on satellite operations. A cloud of dark plasma erupted from the sun this Sunday and is predicted to make contact with Earth today, Wednesday, giving rise to the possibility of a minor geomagnetic storm. The eruption of materials is known as a coronal mass ejection, a cloud of charged solar gas and magnetic fields. It was launched towards Earth on August the 14th from a region of the Sun. Spaceweather.com stated on Monday morning that the plume of dark plasma was traveling at over 1.3 million miles per hour. At that speed, it's expected to take a few days to travel the distance from the Sun to the Earth. Coronal mass ejections are launched from areas of the Sun known as sunspots, which appear to be dark patches on the Sun's surface. The sunspots are located in regions of the Sun where magnetic fields are particularly strong, so strong they prevent heat from reaching the Sun's surface from its core. This makes sunspots cooler than the surrounding area. Some coronal mass ejections have the potential to cause disruption to modern life due to the effect they have on Earth's magnetic field. They can also cause electrical disturbances that might affect power grips, cause increased drag on satellites, and even cause coronas to appear in the parts of the world where they are really seen. The potential effects include weak power grid fluctuations, 
a minor impact on satellite operations, and possibly auroras that may be visible in the United States like northern Michigan and Maine. It was predicted that the storm would be a G1 class storm, the mildest possible score on the geomagnetic storm scale, which goes up to G5 for most people on Earth. Their effects aren't noticeable. G5 storms, on the other hand, have the potential to cause the complete collapse of some power grid systems, disruption to high-frequency radio communications for days, and auroras in states as far south as Florida and South Texas, but such storms are rare. The chip shortage impact on car makers. Most car makers are regularly announcing temporary production halts or shipping cars without certain non-critical systems. In some cases, these companies decided to keep the production going with the vehicles they built temporarily moved to parking lots until chip inventory was available. Most forecasts don't anticipate a substantial recovery through the end of 2022. Car makers did expect a chip crunch to ease off in the last quarter of this year. Research conducted by Susquehanna Financial Group reported that the lead times have dropped in July versus the previous month. The lead times represent the number of weeks between the moment when an order for semiconductors is received by the chip maker and the one when the customer receives it. However, the drop isn't significant as many hoped it would be. The lead times decreased from 27 weeks in June to 26.9 weeks in July. The difference isn't what you would call substantial at all. However, the trend seems to indicate a continuous decline in terms of lead times. July was the third consecutive month when the drop was recorded. There is something that car makers, however, need to continue monitoring. The demand for chips specifically built for the automotive market. This is because the industry trends don't necessarily match the ones in the auto industry. For instance, while the demand for computers and smartphones is declining in the current quarter, this has no impact on automotive chips. Car manufacturers are using an old design, so chip makers continue to struggle to fill orders for customers in the automotive market. While the chip crunch is very likely to continue this year, there's hope the global inventory would slightly improve in 2023. In the meantime, chip makers struggle with other challenges of their own. The rising cost of materials, as well as the shortage of equipment required for the production of chips, mostly as a result of geopolitical tensions in China and Europe, make the long-term manufacturing power impossible to predict, therefore fueling the uncertainty regarding the actual date when the chip shortage could come to an end. Almost every major camera manufacturer has either openly discontinued its point-and-shoot line of cameras or has not produced a new one in many years, according to the Nikkei reports. Smartphones have all but totally replaced compact cameras. The compact camera market, known as point-and-shoot cameras, has been experiencing a virtual complete collapse in worldwide shipments over the past 15 years. Since 2008, when worldwide shipments reached 110.7 million cameras, the market has significantly shrunk and fallen to just 3.01 million units 
as of 2021, a 97% drop. Nikkei reports that Canon, Nikon, Panasonic, Fujifilm, and Sony have all scaled back productions. Canon said they would continue to develop and produce them as long as there is a demand. Well, there's not a demand. Canon denies that it isn't planning to make new compact cameras, but it hasn't released a new one since 2019. Sony's response is pretty much the same as Canon's, and the company says that it is not discontinuing new product development in the compact camera space, but the company hasn't made a new Cybershot since 2019. Nikkei reports that Nikon has stopped developing cameras that would fall under its Coolpix line, the company's branding for compact point-and-shoot style cameras. Nikon tells Nikkei that it still sells two high-magnification models and that future production volume will be determined by the market, which, as noted, isn't growing. Panasonic, which at one point owned the top share of Japan's compact camera market, tells Nikkei that it has been reducing the volume of point-and-shoots that it has been producing over the last several years in response to the shrinking market. Additionally, while it plans to keep making current compact cameras for the time being, it will focus on developing high-end mirrorless cameras aimed at enthusiasts and professionals, including a camera that it plans to release next year that it is developing in conjunction with Leica. Fujifilm has ceased production on its compact camera line, FinePix, and is not actively developing new models for it, instead focusing its effort on higher-end models like the X100V and above. Ricoh, which owns the Pentax brand and OM Digital, seems unfazed by the market contraction, has notably released two point-and-shoot cameras in the last year, the WG80 and the GR3X, and later, along with its special edition. Ricoh seems immune to making decisions in line with the market trends, as it has also stubbornly refused to make a mirrorless Pentax camera. A new survey finds that only 42% of people actually own a camera, and of those, most of them don't even use it. That's according to an eye-opening new survey that underlines just how redundant traditional cameras are becoming in modern society. The Camera Awareness Survey was conducted in Japan found that 41.8% of people have a dedicated camera, with 58.2% not owning one. However, the study didn't just underscore just how few cameras are sold these days, or how few people still own one. It also broke down, for people that do own a traditional camera, how often they actually use it. And the answer is, overwhelmingly, they don't. Of the respondents that own a camera, a staggering 37% don't even use it once a year. Only 8.8% of the people use their cameras once a year, and 12.7% once every six months, 11.8% once every three months, 11.5% once a month, 4.3% once every two weeks, and just 5.4% use their cameras once a week. Hey, that's me in that 5.4%. Interestingly, though, of the 41.8% of people who own cameras, only 11.9% of respondents have actually sold their camera. Still, a significant 39.7% 
of those who sold their cameras did so because they no longer used them, which strongly supports the notion that the uptake of smartphone photography is definitely eroding the need to use and even keep a camera. Although this study was conducted inside Japan, but it still paints a disconcerting picture of the state of photography in 2022. The point-and-shoot appears all but complete at the hands of the smartphone, whose imaging capabilities manufacturers continue to improve. The Gen Z generation is ages 10 through 25. Their internet use is on the rise, but the rate at which teens use Facebook is rapidly declining. A Pew Research Center study on teens, technology, and social media found that only 32% of teens aged 13 through 17 use Facebook at all. But in a previous survey from 2014 to 2015, that figure was 71%, beating out platforms like Instagram and Snapchat. Today, there are over five major social media platforms. It isn't sustainable for anyone to be on all of them. People have to eliminate platforms that begin to lack a value-added incentive. Facebook, which teens often associate with their parents, has little to offer Gen Z. The culture cultivated by the average Facebook user is very disconnected from what attracts Gen Z to a social platform today. In 2013, when 77% of online teens use Facebook, young users still felt negatively about the platform. While Facebook is still deeply integrated in teens' everyday lives, it is sometimes seen as a utility and an obligation rather than an exciting new platform that teens can claim as their own. Pew's report from 2013 said in that nine-year-old study, Pew found that teens expressed more enthusiasm for other platforms even if they weren't using them as much as Facebook. That trend has remained constant as new generations of teens join social media. They almost abandoned Facebook altogether. Pew's new findings are also consistent with Facebook's own internal reporting. According to documents leaked by whistleblower Francis Haugen, a Facebook researcher found in early 2021 that teenage users on Facebook app had declined 13% since 2019 and projected that the figure would continue to plummet 45% over the next two years. Overall, Facebook usership has remained somewhat stagnant, but this drop-off in a key demographic is bad news for Facebook's ads business, which makes up the bulk of its revenue. Most young adults perceive Facebook as a place for people in their 40s and 50s. In a 2021 internal Facebook document, young adults perceive content as boring, misleading, and negative. Even if teens are tired of Facebook, they haven't given up on Instagram, which happens to be another meta platform. 62% of teens use Instagram, up from 52% in the 2014 to 2015 survey. But TikTok, which wasn't even released at the time of the last study, is now used by 67% of U.S. teens. 95% of teens says they use YouTube, which may make it seem like it's the dominant social platform. But many users interact with the platform simply to watch videos, rather than as a place to connect with others online. 
For example, a teen who uses YouTube to listen to music would be included in that 95%. But as TikTok inches above Instagram and Snapchat, which are used by 62% and 59% of the American teens respectively, it makes sense why these older platforms are so desperate to mimic their newer competitor. Pew also asked the 1,316 survey teens about the frequency with which they use these apps. TikTok still earned a greater share of teens' attention than any platform aside from YouTube, which 19% of teens says they use almost constantly. TikTok, Instagram, and Snapchat earned this almost constant attention from 16%, 10%, and 15% of teens respectively. Only 2% said this about Facebook. Teens are aware that social media usage may not always provide the social connection they hope for. 36% of teens think that they spend too much time on social media. Conversely, only 8% of teens said that they think they don't use social media enough. 45% of teens said that they wouldn't have trouble giving up social media. More power to them. Sorry, Facebook. The final countdown begins. Artemis 1 is set to launch. You may not have heard about it. Artemis 1 is set to launch on August the 29th. NASA confirmed at a press conference on August the 3rd that the uncrewed lunar mission is a first test of the spacecraft that will carry astronauts to the moon later this decade. Artemis 1 launch director said, we're basically got a date with a rocket range on the 29th of August. The agency had flagged three possible launch dates spanning August and September of this year at a conference in July after fixing a fuel leak that had caused problems during crucial pre-launch tests. Artemis 1 had originally been slated to launch much sooner this year, but the tests slowed down the process. Artemis 1 still has some major milestones to clear before launch day, these included a final training simulation, rollout to the launch pad, and a battery of final tests and checklists. All of these stages could result in further delays to launch. So, so here's what to expect in the countdown. In the vehicle assembly buildings at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, three of the 10 massive steel work platforms that allow access to the rocket while it's being assembled and checked out, have been retracted. The retraction of each 150-ton platform signals that another section of the SLS rocket and Orion spacecraft is ready to roll out to the launch pad for last-minute testing before takeoff. NASA powered up the Orion capsule for a final check over the weekend on July 30th and 31st. On August the 4th, the Artemis 1 launch team will hold a last training event, a simulated run-through of fueling the rocket and everything else, leading up to the moment of the launch countdown. We're certainly looking forward to getting that simulation behind us and getting that final chance to practice launch countdown before our big day arrives, said the head of the project team. Workers are currently stowing science payloads, including three specially designed mannequins laden with sensors inside the crew module. They will close the hatch on August the 13th, and if everything goes according to plan, 
SLS and Orion will roll out of the assembly building on August the 18th. The Orion capsule, mounted atop the 32-story high SLS rocket, will ride one of NASA's big slow crawlers for its 4-mile, 8- to 12-hour procession to the launch pad. That will signal that launch is near, said the mission manager. There, it will spend 11 days on the launch pad, and during that time, the Artemis 1 team will run through a busy schedule of telemetry checks and engineering tests as the team prepares for the countdown. Much of that process will look similar to the wet dress rehearsal NASA held earlier this year after a series of delays. But this time, the hive of activity will culminate in liftoff, if all goes well. Assuming it all goes according to plan, Artemis 1 launch team will begin pumping liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen into the fuel tanks for the first and second stage rockets early on August the 29th, marking the start of launch day. If NASA has to scrub the launch, whether thanks to the weather, a technical problem, or a stray aircraft in the launch area, the agency has a backup plan. Artemis 1 will remain on the launch pad, and NASA will try again on September the 2nd. Why not just try again the next day, you might ask? If Artemis 1 were to launch on August the 30th, or indeed August the 31st, or the September 1st, the Orion spacecraft would find itself flying in Earth's shadow. That would prevent Orion's solar panels from keeping the spacecraft powered up, so mission planners have opted to wait until September 2nd. If necessary, when Orion can fly in uninterrupted sunlight. And if something goes wrong on September 2nd, NASA has to hope the third time will be the charm. The next backup launch date is scheduled for September 5th. After that, we hope there won't be an after that. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell with the IT Pro Series, Work versus Home Computer, Part 2 of 2. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few minutes talking about you, your computer, your workplace, technology there, all of that. And recently, I was talking about Jane Doe. Was it Jane Doe? John Doe? It doesn't matter. I was referring to somebody who got into a little bit of problems, a little bit of trouble, because they were using their work computer for personal items. They fortunately got a slap on the wrist, and that's why I decided to keep it anonymous. But they went through uh, they went through some little bits of nightmares, and uh, and I asked them to actually keep me updated on some of the different things that they might have discovered along the way. And uh, I, I thought I would spend just a little bit more time uh, it just going down this road, just saying, look, there are. Uh, it's really easy. You keep your work stuff at work. You keep your home stuff at home. If you're having a bad day at home, you when you get to the office, you need to kind of put that aside. You're having a bad day at the office, you need to keep that bad day at the office and don't bring it home. Yes, I know we struggle with that. Uh, but that's kind of a, a personality thing, and that's a person thing. That's that's things that are in our mind, and sometimes those things get unlocked at the wrong time. And that's hard, and we have to deal with that. 
But you can make a conscious decision and you can make these decisions when we're talking about technology. When we're talking about your work laptop, we're talking about your personal computers. We keep all of the different personal stuff, again, on the personal computer, the work stuff on the work computer. But we also need to realize that there are a lot of different areas that that we are not thinking about. The company you work for may be utilizing G Drive or OneDrive or Dropbox or whatever it is. They're utilizing a number of these different packages that are cloud-enabled. And all of your data that you've got there, you can access it. And yes, if you're using Dropbox at home you and you're using Dropbox at the office, there's a temptation to share the information back and forth and just utilize the same account and tie it all together. And I don't want you to do that. Why don't I want you to do that? Because you don't want anyone at the office having access to your personal stuff. Likewise, you don't want any of that appearances, uh, that, that series of the possibility of you making any wrong decisions. They can't prove it. They can't prove that you made a wrong decision, but there's that appearances of it. So you don't even want to go in that direction. So if you use Dropbox at home, don't connect your Dropbox at the office to your Dropbox at home. OneDrive, Google Docs, all of it. Just don't associate the two with each other. There are sometimes audits that happen across all of the data that's going through your uh, I'll pick it. I'll, I'll say Dropbox. They're watching all of the different data that's going through the Dropbox. They can track all of this information. And if they see something in there that shouldn't be in there, they can start doing a deep dive. This is the same thing as, as any of the browsing you might do on the Internet. Oh, you know what? It's Prime Day. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to get the great deals. On your company computer? That's not a good move. That's really not a good move. Because that means you're not working. And they can track everything you're doing. Everything you, every website you go to with your work computer, it's probably going, it's going to store that information locally. It's going to send that information uh, as it's moving through your company intranet that's internal out to the internet there's a firewall there and they can track everything long time ago i i was tasked by my boss to monitor a few of the employees and i could track down a number of different things. I'm not going to get into the details. There were some some crazy things that you know hmm I'm going to say it like this. It was, we we did an example. I was able to show what size of clothing that somebody was wearing because of their shopping. And when I showed them that, because my boss told me to do that, uh, they were embarrassed and they corrected their bad behavior. I want you to think about that. If I can provide that information don't you think your company can also look up that same information the answer is yes so look it's an embarrassing kind of thing for some people 
you're, you're a large person, you're a skinny person, it's whatever it is, look, you don't want to go down that road. And I mentioned this last time, uh, be careful about all of your messaging with all of your coworkers. And I'm going to even say that with offline. I don't, this is a conscious decision I make. I do not make friends with anybody in my management structure on LinkedIn or on Facebook unless they are no longer in my management structure. They can see what I'm doing. Uh, You know, we can be friends after that. And that's a safe thing to do. But I try to, well, I try to always be uh, on the up and up whenever I'm on any of the social media. Last item, uh, any of your folders, any of your folders on your laptop, uh, your desktop, whatever it is, your work computer, they're not private. Even if they're not attached to your OneDrive or your G Drive or any of that, it's still not private. They can access everything across the entire enterprise. So just don't mix and match. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Solid state storage devices excel over hard disk storage devices on any measure of performance and power efficiency metrics. However, hard disk drives do have one advantage compared to solid state drives, and that is their higher storage density and capacity. Hard disk storage has historically had one saving grace compared to solid state devices. Their storage density, which leads to an advantage in the cost per gigabyte storage. Now, according to a new report, the declining hard disk drive market has the advantage of environmental concerns on its side as well. A study carried out by the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of British Columbia has tried to measure just how exactly solid-state drives impact the environment. The verdict is that solid-state devices have twice the environmental impact of a hard disk drive but it might not be all that clear. According to the study, solid-state devices' excessive carbon footprint compared to hard disk devices come from the manufacturing process itself. The latest solid-state devices use multiple NAN, DRAM, and controller chips, each manufactured with cutting-edge silicon manufacturing techniques and multi-layer bonding processors, requiring both expensive materials and high electricity usage. So while hard disk drives have a higher carbon footprint throughout their operational lifetime due to increased energy consumption, solid state devices generate the brunt of their emissions before they ever write the first bite. According to a study, the average solid state device has a storage embodied factor, that's the SEF, representing the rate of carbon dioxide emissions relative to the capacity of the storage medium of 0.16. On the other hand, hard disk devices have a SEF or storage embodied factor of only 0.02. The lower the SEF, the lower the environmental impact. The researchers also mentioned energy sources for semiconductor manufacturing as being mostly based on high impact mediums such as coal. Still, the lack of data on this domain, namely, what exact percentage of energy is derived from renewable and non-renewable sources, means what the results have to be taken with a grain of salt. 
Further, studies are definitely needed here. The study further pointed out what the best storage option would be in certain workload scenarios and concluded that a one terabyte hard disk drive would beat a one terabyte solid state device by emitting 96 kilogram and 199 kilogram of carbon dioxide against the solid state devices 184 kilogram and 369 kilogram over a five and 10 years respectively. The choice of scenarios for the study was very limited though. In fact, they plotted out a single scenario where the device's operation was distributed throughout 80% idle and 20% active time. Hard disk devices in particular have double the power consumption of solid state devices, while active typically 8 to 9 watts against the best solid state devices of 4 to 5 watts, and much higher idle consumption. The latest solid state devices consume below the 400 milliwatt per hour range, whereas the hard disk devices have typically bottomed out around 3 watts per hour range. The researchers further assumed that the solid-state device would consume around 1.3 watts, while the hard disk drive was assumed to consume just 4.5 watts, thus losing out on clarity of data. Here's the issue. Workloads matter. So does the speed at which the workload is concluded. Measuring a component's environmental impact is a much more complex endeavor than it might initially seem. While power efficiency is generally a good metric by indicating the amount of energy needed per unit of work, upstream carbon impacts, those that happen throughout the manufacturing process itself and until the product is in your hands, are generally much more impactful. You have to measure the carbon footprint of the materials extraction process. The logistics that get those materials through the factory and into your hands and even the carbon footprint of the workers' activities. The impact of discarding a piece of hardware, too, can vary wildly, depending on if you send it towards a specialized recycling center or if you just quietly toss it into the garbage can. However, I don't recommend this. These are just some elements that must be considered when planning and optimize solution. Data centers are well aware of both the cost per gigabyte cost and power consumption metrics for both solid-state devices and hard disk devices. That's why all recent supercomputing designs feature both a hot data node composed of fast solid-state devices that ferry in-processing information and cold data storage nodes composed of hard disk drives for data that's simply being stored, where the power consumption difference matters less. The takeaway that it is exceedingly hard to study and calculate something as complex as the environmental impact of a single component, particularly when there are logistics, supply chains, and workload variables to consider. We must remember not to take the data out of context. While the research provides insight into the need to properly account for the entirety of a hard disk device and solid state device's carbon footprint, There are just too many variables to consider in order to stake any concrete claims of the increased environmental impact of hard disk drives versus solid-state devices. In general, we say that consumers have many more benefits to take away from investing in solid-state devices 
compared to hard disk devices. The concerns about solid-state devices wearing out aren't too relevant for most users. Most don't write nearly enough data on their solid-state device to render them inoperable. Of course, environmental concerns are extremely important, and we should always strive to reduce our impact as much as possible. But you can always cut back on the time it takes for your file copies to finish while helping the environmental elsewhere with the extra hours of your time that you'll have available. We've been amazed by the colors in the web telescope images. Are the colors in the Webb Telescope images fake? The James Webb Space Telescope collects infrared and near-infrared light, which the human eye cannot see. So what makes Webb Space Telescope images so dazzling? On July 12th, the first full-color images from the Webb Space Telescope show countless nebulae, galaxies, and a gassy exoplanet as they had never been seen before. So where are all these gorgeous colors coming from? Image developers on the web team are tasked with turning the telescope's infrared image data into some of the most vivid views of the cosmos that we've ever seen. They assign various infrared wavelengths to colors on the visible spectrum, the familiar reds, blues, yellows, etc. The process images from the web team aren't literally what the telescope really see. Webb's first test images helped check its mirrors, alignment, and captured an orange-tinted shot of the large Magellanic Cloud. Those early snapshots were not representative color images. One used a monochromatic filter, its image was grayscale, and the other just translated infrared light into the red to yellow visible color bands, so the team could see certain features of the cloud they imaged. But now, with the telescope up and running, the images that get released are full of blazing color. In other words, colors were assigned, arbitrarily, to different parts of the infrared spectrum. Astronomy is often done outside the visible spectrum, because many of the most interesting objects in space are shining brightly in ultraviolet, X-rays, and even radio waves, which category light falls into depends on the photon's wavelength. The Webb Telescope is designed to see infrared light, whose wavelengths are longer than the red visible light, but shorter than microwave. Infrared light can penetrate thick clouds of gas and dust in space, allowing researchers to see previously hidden secrets of the universe. Especially intriguing to scientists is that light from the early universe has been stretched as the universe has expanded, meaning what was once ultraviolet or visible light may now be infrared, what's known as red-shifted light. Webb's raw images are so laden with data that they need to be scaled down before they can be translated into visible light. The images also need to be cleaned of artifacts like cosmic rays and reflections from bright stars that hit the telescope's detectors. If you look at a Webb image before processing work is done, it'll look like a black rectangle peppered with some white dots. So, are the colors in the Webb Telescope images fake? The Space Telescope Science Institute released the following statement. There was some connotation that go along with colorizing or forced colors that imply that 
some process going on where we are arbitrarily choosing colors to create a color image. Representative color is the most preferred term for the kind of work that we do, they said, because they think it encompasses the work that we do of translating light to create a true color image, but in a wavelength range that our eyes are not sensitive to. Longer infrared waves are assigned redder colors, and the shortest infrared wavelengths are assigned bluer colors. Blue and violet light has the shortest wavelength within the visible spectrum, while red has the longest. The process is called chromatic ordering, and the spectrum is split into as many colors as a team needs to capture the full spectrum of light depicted in the image. They said, we have filters on the instruments that collect certain wavelengths of light, which we then apply a color that is most closely what we think it will be on the visible spectrum. It's a balance between the art and the science because you want to showcase science and the features, and sometimes those two things don't necessarily work together. Collecting light in Webb's hexagonal mirrors is only half the battle when it comes to seeing the distant universe. Translating what's there is subjective science in interpreting what we cannot see. Presenting Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston with their tech chatter. Brush that bamboozled dentist. Now, I recently did a survey, and I counted up all of the different items in there, and I I asked for just statisticians to reach out to me. And 25% of statisticians said that the other 75% are liars. So... That's mathematically probable. It is, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Marty Winston joins me now. And by the way, when your local station brags about how fast-growing they are, Remember, anybody with more than 50% share of market has a hard time growing faster than it's already grown. <laughs> Being able to grow fast yes. means you got almost nothing in your pocket now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Marty, you wanted to talk about statistics. You, uh, yeah, you, there and, was uh, something you had experienced recently. or Yeah, I yeah. brushed my teeth. <laughs> okay. And did, what I, did you hit 95% of your teeth? Uh, I'm not sure. I'll have to go to the sink and check what's left. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, really, this is something that's kind of gaffed me for a long time. Mm-hmm. Dentists long believed, because they did such a brilliant marketing job, that the Philips Sonicare toothbrush yeah. was was in some way sonic, which they confused with ultrasonic. And they believed that this strange effect was breaking up bad things on your teeth and would make you much cleaner than any toothbrush alone ever could. Wait, wasn't that part of their commercial? Uh Uh-huh. Now, let me explain exactly what is sonic. Yeah. It spins at a rate such that with the count of bristles that it has, you will find a bristle hitting a tooth a number of times that corresponds to frequencies in the audio range. Okay. So so if it's hitting your tooth a thousand times a second, that's a one kilohertz tone. Sure. But it's not. It doesn't sound like, it just sounds like a toothbrush. So Mm -hmm. it's not really sonic. It's just 
you know, some clever. So, so is this, the, uh, oh, oh, hey, we've got an electric toothbrush, but man, it makes too much noise. Hey, we can market that. I don't think that it makes too much noise. Okay. Uh, electric toothbrushes before that were kind of like vibrators with bristles. They just, you know, and that's about all they did. Okay. And they weren't very fast and they didn't go very far mm-hmm. and they didn't have the Philips marketing muscle behind them. Sure. Yeah. And I have friends at Philips, so please, uh, this is not an insult. It's just a historically uh, triggered remark. Sure. Now, I'd like to give you and the listeners a mathematical parallel to complaining, to claiming mm-hmm. that it, it's complaining, play, claiming that they're often the same. Yeah. A mathematical parallel to claiming that toothbrush is in some way sonic. Okay. And we're going to go high above the earth mm-hmm, yeah. where there are organisms that go through their entire lives, their entire life cycle mm-hmm. in the upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that any moment there could easily be 300 billion such organisms. Okay. All right. And you can imagine them riding the winds mm-hmm. at an average speed that might be, what, one meter per second. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, using math, I, I, I'm a, I, I'm kind of a space junkie. Yeah, I, I, go on. Yeah. Uh, using okay. math, using math collectively, you've got 300 billion microorganisms, one meter per second. That comes out to 300 million kilometers per second. And if that sounds familiar, okay, <laughs> it's the speed of light. Uh huh. Now, if you believe for a second that those microorganisms are traveling at the speed of light. <laughs> well, you're adding up the wrong numbers there. But but then again, OK, so do the statisticians. Yeah, okay. uh, so do the toothbrush bristles. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. You, 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 you multiply two numbers and the result is a number that reminds you of something else. That doesn't make it something else. Right, right. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it, it's a as close to a number pun as you're likely to get. <laughs> Four out of five dentists recommend, and then we find out what what was this? What was the secret behind that? They, they I, it wasn't all dentists. Oh, it was. It was <laughs> <laughs> and somehow they'd all they'd all been given a lot of free. Oh, toothpaste yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, the ones yeah. who come to the seminars. Well, what did you think of our presentation? Oh, yes, yeah. I will right. definitely yeah. recommend that. Uh, give me another bag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Perhaps this isn't the point in time when I should mention that my wife, she actually works for, she works in the medical industry. Well, she's allowed. I mean, a lot of us <laughs> need people who work in the medical industry. Yes. yes. <laughs> and you've long had these strange ideas about what nurses do. So you're way past that now. She's not a nurse. No, no, she's not. But no, no. She, she works in the industry. Yes. Yeah. I, I understand. So, but in high in high demand and, and very good at what she does. Yeah. Despite living with you. What is the we've got one minute left. Yeah, okay. What is the best statistic that you've seen out there? What, what's the, the the best one that comes to mind? Oh, well, that, that back to back most to the accurate. Yeah, most accurate. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know of any accurate. Well, probably <laughs> the the fifty percent coin flip. There you go. Yes, fifty <laughs> percent. Yeah, uh, <laughs> As for now, that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty.
Public service announcements of computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation, Cyber Securing U.S. Elections, Thursday, August the 25th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation on the James Webb Telescope, Thursday, September the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting on Friday, September the 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn, And for more information and confirmation, the phone number is 347-278-7320. And the Long Island Macintosh Users Group has no scheduled meeting for August, but their online website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN.Live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on PRN.Live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.